Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Stephen Thomas was born into a working-class Catholic family in Auburn, Washington in 1950. At 12, a teacher played a recording of Emily Dickinson's poems, and he says his fate was sealed. A pillar of the Seattle poetry scene of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, he founded the Cabaret Hegel in an abandoned factory and presented with many notable performers such as Stephen Jesse Bernstein. Stephen Thomas has published work in Exquisite Corpse, Poetry Northwest, the Malahat Review, and other publications, and currently lives in Germany's Black Forest, where he co-founded the Gemeinschaft Sonnenwald, a sustainable agriculture community. Stephen, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I practiced the German, but I could have done Sonnenwald. That would have been more accurate, yeah? Sonnenwald. Sonnenwald, with an A, right. Uh-huh. Now, you've, you did a reading in Kirkland on Saturday, and in Shoreline, in the backyard of Phoebe Boucher and Scott Martin on Sunday, and you said this, and these are my words, I'm paraphrasing, but it took a move to Germany to realize just how American you are. <laughs> exactly, yes. As I organized this book, I evolved a series of divisions. I'd seen other poets do that, and I decided that for each of the divisions, I'd have a title and a proem to orient people toward the title. And the second section of the book is entitled, Who is Who? And the poem that I wrote to orient people to the title and to what's going on in this section goes like this. The longer I live in Europe, the more American I become. I had a beef with the beats, too loose for my tight riches. When I was 40, nearly, I found Whitman waiting for me. I mean me. He told me so, right there on the Brooklyn Ferry. I let him in where Emily already had her attic room. His barbaric yop and her urgent whisper bred my voice. I had to get away to find out who is who. Do I contradict myself? <laughs> Very well then. You contain multitudes too. Yeah, yeah it's, um, that's the other great poem. I used to teach at university prep and it was university prep that helped me discover Whitman. I had American literature in the 11th grade and I discovered Song of Myself, which I'd never really plowed through, and Brooklyn Ferry, to which I refer here. And I, I realized, this guy is talking literally. That's how he, he got away with being a homosexual and open about it in the 19th century because he was open in a really specific way. He copped the poetic of the Psalms and the Song of Solomon, which everybody was accustomed to reading as something that had to be interpreted. They would just ignore the vehicle of the metaphor and stick with the tenor. So he could write gay poetry and, but it also he could write directly. So when he said, you there, uh, above, he pointed up from the page, and there I was with my nose hanging over it. So I took him seriously. And he said he foresaw me. You mean, you are more to me than you know. Poets of the future. Yes. So I, I discovered my lineage in him and in Emily. I can't imagine the two of them get together, but they did. 
Yeah, quintessentially American. Those two are like the mother and father of American poetry. They sure are. And you see, you've got this, you've got this virgin and this gay guy, and they're the mother and father of the tradition that we occupy and continue. It's absolutely miraculous and wonderful. And it took me. I always loved Emily from the time I was twelve, but it took me until I was in my forties to discover my the other half. There's so much in your background that demands documentation as far as poetry activities go, uh, especially here in Seattle. And where to start? I think maybe telling a story about Cabaret Hegel would illustrate that in a good way. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But that's, that's what I think. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad you think that way. I consider that to be a, an important episode in the history of particularly performance poetry in Seattle and the Northwest. So it came out, of course, of Red Sky Poetry Theater. When I moved up here from Portland, where I spent a year, I moved down there as a CETA poet, Comprehensive Education and Training Act, a program that got started in the Carter administration. I got a job down there in 79. I was paid a handsome salary of $833 a month just to be a poet and, and do stuff. And after that was over, I hung around for a couple of years and I, I became reacquainted with Matt Kangas, this guy I, I used to live in the St. John's apartment on First Hill. It's still there, although it's been upscaled. He published my first little book of poems called Poems. I moved up here. It was Tomahawk Editions, 1981. And I moved up here and got involved in Red Sky. And what happened, I, through Red Sky, I got to know some artists who occupied this building at 6th and Royal Brougham, which had been an old shoe factory. And they had what was called then the Rhino Condo. They got a lease on the floor above them and platted it out. And I was the first one in there. I thought, oh, this is cool. I was working as a carpenter, so I moved up there with my books and stuff in this vast industrial space on the fourth floor of a brick building at 6th and Royal Brougham, where now the Greyhound Depot is, and had a view over the ID of the city. I watched the Columbia Tower rise there while I was there. So I built a room 22 feet wide, 60 feet long, and the ceiling went from 16 to about 20 feet high. And there I started inviting people every month to perform on Friday and Saturday nights. And it was illegal, you know, I, <laughs> I, I violated the sumptuary laws, as Mark Svenbull put it in his, his little book, the, the Death of the Cabaret Hegel. And a lot of interesting stuff went down there. Every month, there was this, for me, there was this challenge, can I put together a show and can I take part in it? And of course, Jesse was there and other Seattle lights, uh, Charlie Burks in particular, Paula Killen, who's now down in LA. Mark Svenvold performed there after coming down from Alaska where he did a gig as a tour guide on a bus. He's now in New York and he's published a, a few books of pretty good poems. And one, I, I put together a show 
uh, late there called A Bust of Milan Kundera. Mark had put me onto the work of Milan Kundera. And I decided I would like to do something, so I, I got a, an old piece of a salvaged kitchen cabinet, big tall thing that had room for a refrigerator and then room on top. And uh, I cut out a hole in the bottom of the top part took the door off, and I stood inside with head and shoulders visible through this thing, and recited, oh, and I had a, a map of Europe in front of me, and I, I read some work by Kundera as with a razor knife behind, I carved out various countries in Eastern Europe and revealed myself before I set the thing on fire. <laughs> I was always doing crazy shit back then, but it was fun. And it, as it happened, Heather McHugh, who was teaching at University of Washington, was sitting in the audience. And so she got in touch with me and we became friends. It was an interesting time. There was just a lot of stuff going on. A lot of people wanted to do something different. And already at this time, there was a stratification of the performance art scene in Seattle. There were uh, people that, uh, you know, performed primarily at, what was that a joint down in the hollow um, between Yesler and Jackson? Okay Hotel? I can't remember what it was called, but they had a, a programs there called 11 Minutes Max. And um, anyway, there was just a lot of stuff going on. and. My crew were the bottom feeders, I would call them, yeah. Uh, Jesse was the one that had the most public, but Jesse always identified with the bottom feeders, and he fit right in there. We did a lot of interesting stuff. And then in 86, the state decided to bring all those on and off ramps from I-90, which had terminated mid-air for decades. I mean, when I used to drive up to school, in Kenmore, when I was going to St. Ed's, we'd always go through there, and there were all these off-ramps that terminated mid-air. Well, when I moved there, they decided they were going to bring them down to earth. So the state broke our leases, gave us all 10,000, and ran us out and tore the place down. That's a good deal. It was a good deal. I was still drinking at the time, so I didn't use it as... as uh, intelligently as I might have, but it financed my return to graduate school. I went to UW and uh, got an MA there, studied with some interesting cats. Now 10 grand is the tip yeah, on your MFA program. Yeah. Um, I was thinking as you were telling the story of setting that cabinet on fire, was that during your drinking days? And, yeah. I, and I guess the answer is yes to that. Uh, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit. It's good of you to be open about your past history with that. I think that's very healthy. Before that, though, there's some more of the history, I think, important. There's point, no point. That oh, yeah. I think that'd be a, a good to tell folks what that was about and what your involvement was and what you tried to do with it and how you named it and anything that comes up. Okay. Well, that's interesting, yeah. Somehow or other, I got to know Walt Crowley and his wife, Marie, uh, Cafferty, yeah, probably through Patrick. What was Patrick's last name? He was a Lincoln. No, no. Patrick 
uh, I don't know how I got to know. It'll, it'll come to me. It's an Irish name. He used to work as a PR guy for Politicos. He worked in a little shop down in Belltown. And somehow or other, we got connected. And it was, pro oh, it was probably through the two bells. That was a hangout down there. And, oh, gosh, you know, I'm so bad on names these days. When I lived in Leshire, I took over the apartment from the guy, Raymond, I can't remember his last name, who was one of the founders of this uh, art installation company where a lot of people worked. Anyway, we got together, and he said, we want to start a magazine. And Patrick came up with a name, because No Point, Point No Point is a point on the north end of Whidbey. Sounded kind of Zen to Patrick. And what we tried to do there is was a, a continuation to some extent of what the Helix used to be on UW, which Walt, of which Walt was one of the editors and frequent authors. The idea was to have an alternative to the highly subsidized magazines and outlets in Seattle. And we got some money that allowed us to award prizes for publication, and they Uh, took me on as a poetry editor. And I had a great time with it. I got to write reviews. I got to promote people whose work I really appreciated. I got to share a little money out into the system. I believe one year we awarded Nico Vasilakis of, uh, of Clearcut. He shared an award, I think, with John Olson, who's a, a man whom I'm still in touch with. And it lasted a couple of years, and then, of course, Walt got sick, and it sort of petered out the way small magazines will. But in the meantime, we did something fairly significant, and we had a lot of fun. We'd get together at, at Walt and Marie's place up on uh, Finney Ridge, Lower Finney Ridge, a great house. And we'd have our editorial meetings, and I always remember getting in a, a little bit of a tiff with Marie. She's a graphic designer. And I have this poem that I still do. It's a wonderful performance piece called I Met the Buddha on the Road. And she printed it over an illustration of the Buddha as if to contextualize it. Well, excuse me, the poem makes its own context. And she was shocked when I just didn't love her graphic design motif. I said, never do that to anything of mine again. Poems are poems, you can't illustrate them. It's like, I don't know, it's like pouring ketchup on a steak. Or I don't know what it's like, but I didn't like it. I think I educated her a little bit. <laughs> As part of that. And, and that was after I quit drinking, I believe. So I did it more gently than I might have done prior to 90. There's a poem, you, you call them proems, page mm -hmm. three, that sets the tone uh, yeah. for the book somewhat. Mm -hmm. You've read that at each event, but I think it's well worth repeating because it really says a lot about who you are and the context from which you come. Yeah, well, thank you. I'll, I'll read it right now. I've been writing poems for 60 years or so. Most of the poems died of ideation others of sentiment. The ones in which thought and feeling dance have life 
for now. This poem, however, about growing up under the mountain. Ah. So there, there are a couple of different poems as epigraphs. Uh, well, the, this is the one for the whole book. Got it. Uh, and then, and okay. Then that chapter there that you. And have, the next one is mountain wants down to the sea. Yeah, and, yeah. And the proem there, it's a. I don't think it's a very. I adopted this word, which is a neologism, precisely because when I wrote these. I was doing something that I'd never done before. I was I was writing sort of occasional verse just to fit this context. So I chose to call them proems. I guess because I wanted to make a different claim on the reader's attention and focus the reader's attention in a different way as I, than I would perhaps in a, a poem that I would call a poem. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. I believe, well I know, I know, uh, to write a poem is to make a specific kind of claim on other people's attention. In order to substantiate that claim, a poet has to exercise a very specific and highly concentrated form of attention. This notion goes back to Charles Hartman, who used to teach at UW years ago, who wrote one of the most masterful books I've ever read about prosody. It's called Free Verse. And in this book, he defines a poem as the language of an act of attention. I find that true and brilliantly concise. So when I say that a poem makes a claim on attention, what I mean is it's a meeting ground between a reader and a poet. And the more commensurate the attention of the reader with that of the writer, the more power the interchange has. Yeah, so what a poem does is a poem, uh, as Nabokov says, you should, you, you should read literature with your spine. Yeah, meaning you should you should look for those little tingles, that, uh, those those energy jolts that perhaps in daily life you're too preoccupied to attend. Hmm. Yeah. Is so, there something else? That was our, that was Siri trying to trying to horn in on our. Oh, was Siri uh, yeah. as an eagle yeah. goes by over as Lake Washington? There. Yeah, Siri was saying, "Look up." Watch the eagle, and there it is. Yeah. There it is. So oh, no, that's actually a heron there. I think this one coming back this way, over the lake, and in front of Mercer Island, turning, going down. Yeah. That, trying to get a fish, but being ah, unsuccessful. Okay. Yeah. The bird life here is marvelous. Yeah. I have a lot of poems in the book about bird life and its various forms. So to, um, to talk about that on page three, uh, growing up under the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, this is the proem that I had in mind because yeah. we said in your introduction that you were born in Auburn, Washington, to which I have a connection, as you yes, know. Yes, I know. So hearing that poem and then talking about Auburn, I think, would be interesting. Okay, well, yeah, I grew up in Auburn where, where you spent some time. Seventeen and a half years. Yeah. Yeah, that's about how long I stayed there. Is well, actually, right? I left when I was 14 to go to the cemetery. Seminary. <laughs> so I grew up under 
the mountain. We called her that, just as the tribes before ours did. Tahoma, mountain. They didn't need the article, I mean the. She stands there nearly three miles high. It's particularly true when you're on the commencement bay outside of Tacoma. I mean, there she is. I tried to climb her once. I wanted to see the valley where I came to consciousness from her peak. She clouded up as we neared the crest and blew us back. As she has wanted to do from time to time. Yeah, that was on my 50th birthday. Did you start from Camp Muir? I guess so, yeah. We, we came up to Paradise and then we, we hiked up to Muir, if that's the one, at 10,000 feet. We spent the day there to get acclimatized and to practice climbing out of crevasses should we fall into one. Um, make sure that we didn't suffer from pulmonary edema. And then it, we got up around midnight. I didn't sleep much at all. On the, you know, we got up at midnight and left our tent there, packed up our day's gear, and started up, and it was a beautiful night. Lots of, lots of stars, and the sun came up, and we were in an ice garden at the foot of the glacier that comes down from Disappointment Cleaver. We were there, I don't know how high up we were, maybe 12,000 feet at that point, looking out to the southwest, it was just gorgeous. It was all these lenticular clouds shaping themselves to the landscape below us. And all around us, these trees, these bizarre formations in ice. We had a little snack there and then we went on, on up. And as we got up past the Disappointment Cleaver, the clouds started to roll in and the wind started up and uh, it got to where we couldn't see anything. I don't know what our altitude was where we had to decide, well, are we going to go on with a visibility of maybe 10 yards? We're going to turn back. And nobody enjoyed himself or herself. There were two young German women and this guy who lives in Skyway who was helping me remodel the house that we had down in, on 51st. And so, you know, we talked about it. And we decided, well, really, it's not worth the effort just to say, oh, we made the crest. What did you see? Fog. We saw clouds from the inside. It was really interesting. This last couple of days that you've been in town, uh, not today so much, but previous days, the mountain has been spectacularly visible. And with that, since you left the country, a big hunk of it gone, big hunk of the ice gone, I should say, mm -hmm. from the heat dome where we had 108 degrees uh, one day, a record, I believe, and three days over 100. When I moved to Seattle in 1988, there had never been a day in recorded history that the temperature was over 100. And then there was three days in this heat dome, which in British Columbia, they had certain bays that smelled like there had been a seafood uh, roast. Mm -hmm. The bays with the cooked mussels and clams and, and whatever. Yeah. Did you see that while you were in town? And if so, how does it feel to see the mountain in that way? What kind of feeling does that engender in you? That's an interesting question. I think I'd like to answer that with a poem. 
This poem is called The Swifts. Um, some places have their swallows. Where I live, we have the Swifts. They're, yeah, they're closely related. But they're somewhat different. And let me see if I can find it here. Page 17. Thank you. The Swifts. Um, where I used to live uh, before I moved out to the country, I lived in Stuttgart on the West, uh, the West Hills where we had an apartment on the fifth floor, fifth floor walk-up, with a magnificent view over the, the Stuttgart Kessel, the, the cauldron there. Stuttgart is an automotive town. Daimler, which is Mercedes-Benz, and Porsche are both there. And we had this view over this, this valley. And from there, uh, when we had a we had a porch, a suspended balcony there. This is our swift viewing locale. So, the swifts. Each spring we wait and wonder, will they come? So much does not return. Old certainties evaporate above stalled cars. The climate vacillates. The bees are dying off and old, old friends have undergone the last of our earthly transformations. Above the tiled roofs and ringing spires, we spy the first outrider, veering, acrobatic in the sky, swerving, diving, doing what she can to gather for her brood-to-be the juice of life. We raise a shout, they're back, as if it were a miracle that anything so naturally adept should find its way across the continents to this sprawling automotive town. We come out to our own private precipice, an asphalt courtyard 50 feet below, to watch for followers, to know another generation will be born to graze the skies and show forth unmistakably the joy of flesh in flight through space and time. Nice cadence in that last line to bring it home, eh? Uh, yeah, I slowed it down intentionally. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, that's the human. Yeah, these guys don't slow down, they just fear. But one of the things that that's about here, it uh, awakens my gratitude for what's left. And I believe that as we face the challenges, which will become even more and more extreme as the century progresses, we're going to need to be in touch with our gratitude because if we're not, will become strictly embittered. And bitterness won't help us out. We need gratitude. And that's the thing that's been lacking in this world. Pe people in positions of power aren't grateful. They're not certainly grateful to the mother. They don't think of her as a mother. They think of her as a whore to be used. And when I see the mountain, the big she here, losing her glaciers, I realize how precious the time we have here is. It brings it home. I know when the glaciers are gone, so will be the rivers. And when the rivers are gone, so will be the salmon. When the salmon were gone, the vast food web of the sea, which we've already damaged so severely, will again be shrunken. And I think many times that what we're here for, because as humans, we're expressions of the earth, 
nothing that we do is unearthly. It might not be in, well, no, not, no might about it. It's not in harmony with the rhythms of the earth, but it comes out of earth. I think we're preparing this climate so that the, the mushrooms that form the intelligence and the brain of the forest will thrive. We'll be gone, but other species, we're not, we don't have to save the earth, she'll save herself. She's, we're just preparing the way for other species, crows maybe, coyotes, and the shrooms in the forest soil. What was it like growing up in the former slaughter in the 50s and 60s? Well, yeah, well I say in, uh, another, I'll read a, another, another poem that touches upon that in passing. It's one that I wrote to my sister, and I like to read this at the beginning of each of my each of my readings to call her spirit into the room. Um, it's invocation from Mary Joanne Thomas Martinson, 1947 to 1997, page 52. Spaces between the stars are crowded with stars. Starlight everywhere. Only our eyes are not large. I turn where I see no light and raise my voice to you there. Generous mother, joyous girl, vivid woman, come. Come out of the seeming night, out of the darkest space, there where silence and death seem to foreclose life and light. Come back to me here, where I crouch, befuddled, a fool at court in the kingdom of speed and noise. There are terrors here, and worse than those that as children we knew. Then it was dad and the bomb. Now it's the end of time. That's how it feels to me now, in this warmest December since anyone can remember. Snow-capped mountains are few. Upon time once was a plan. The god of our innocence had everything in his mind. But the plan was written in smoke. It was gone with a wave of a hand, replaced, as I hear it now, by what was always there, the improvisations of love. So when I grew up in the valley, it was agricultural. There were truck farms everywhere. You know, large Catholic family, there were six of us. Mom worked, Dad worked, and during the summers we were expected to work. So we, we worked. We picked strawberries. At Japanese farms? At, yeah, for, we picked for Nishimura. We, we picked for Tokushahara. We picked for Sandy Iwai. Sometimes we picked for Hashimoto. I don't remember his name. And that was just part of it. And of course, and until I was six, the river, the green, flooded every year. It flooded. That's what rivers do. That's how the soil got to be so deep, so rich. It's this black alluvial volcanic soil. Must have been three meters deep. Just glorious. Then they dammed the green, the Mud Mountain Dam. Flood stopped. There's another poem about that. And the river was never the same. Didn't flood, but then what could they do? They could build on the valley floor. So they did what the Romans did to Carthage after they finally defeated them. 
they didn't want another culture to arise there, so they salted the earth. Well, what we've done in the valley there, is most of the farms where we build, you have to put, lay something down on the soil to keep the weeds from sprouting through the concrete and the asphalt. So it's poison the earth. That's what we've done. That's part of the death of our culture. And this is something that, until we acknowledge it, experience our grief over it, and share that grief with one another, we can't get beyond. And that's one of the things this book is about. What is between us? Well, there's a whole lot between us, and much of it's unacknowledged. And when it's not acknowledged, it's between us in the, in the sense of it separates us. And when we acknowledge it, then it's in the sense of what binds us. And that's one of the many ambiguities of this phrase. I chose it primarily because I was thinking about my sister, trying to write a suitable elegy for her. And it, and it widened out, like the way a poem will, the way any poetic insight will. It, it, the more you occupy a particular feeling or place, the more that place starts to glow with significance and can expand in order to embrace everything. That's something I learned from Ammons. Or like the river. Yeah, like the river. Without Charlie Potts, your work might have gone undocumented, no? Yeah, that's true. I had one little book that came out in 90, published by Matt Kangas in his Tomahawks Editions series. It's a thin little book. You could shave with it if you needed to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you liked that. <laughs> the razor's edge. Uh-huh. Mm. And then um, uh, Charles came to Bumbershoot in 82 when I was one of the readers there representing Red Sky. And what he told me was he was there with his, uh, I, I can't remember whether he was doing, I think he was doing Litmus still at the time. He's had three imprints. Litmus was the first. So he had a, a table there in the big book festival. And he listened to everybody. And he told me afterwards, he said, well, you were the only poet there. Well, it's an exaggeration, but of course, it, you know, it laughed my ego. He said, and he uh, went off, he said, well, we exchanged addresses, and he sent me back this huge stack of books from Walla Walla. It was too much for me. I was overwhelmed at the time. And besides that, I was uh, still abusing alcohol. It took me until I sobered up in 90 to get back in touch with him and to begin to, what well, to exchange with him. And he, he led me to uh, David Hyatt, who published a uh, little, another chapbook of mine called Venom. I think that was in 91. And then he went away to Japan to do some uh, ethnography, some language research. And he said, when I come back, I want to put out a volume of your poems. And that's what he did. He came back and we put together Journeyman. That was 97. He's been a tireless promoter of a lot of poets who benefited from his taste and his, his generosity. He, he made his nut in Walla Walla and real estate. And so he's got money to spread around and he's generous with it. And so when he learned that I was coming to the States, to be part of a poetry festival in Kentucky that he was also part of. He said, well, we should put out another book of your poems. 
And that's how What is Between Us came about. And I'm extremely grateful to the man. He's always been, he's been, it's, uh, it's a, when you know Charles, it's kind of like knowing a Renaissance Duke, you know? <laughs> Only he's more relaxed about it. He's not bloodthirsty. He's just, you know, he's just, patron, he's a patron. And he also, and he's a patron who also writes and who writes intelligently. His book, How the South Won the Civil War and Controls the Future of American Politics, came out 25 years ago. He foresaw something that now people are waking up to. He's and, a man of learning. And that the South also includes Arizona yeah. and Southern California. You're right. And uh, yeah, how the South finally won the Civil War and controls the political future of the United States, yeah. I think. I did an interview with him about that book, and it's, uh, yeah, it is prophetic. And he, It's an important book. He's an interesting guy. Another interesting guy is Robert Bringhurst. You yes. mentioned Bringhurst this past weekend. Tell us about how his work has inspired you, and then maybe read the Highline Trail, which starts out with borrowing lines from him. Okay. I met Robert Bringhurst in um, 82 or 83. As it happened, there was a group of, there were two guys up in Vancouver, Wayne Holder and his friend Tom. He had a Lithuanian last name that it does not stick in my memory. They had put together a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a poetic cartel up there. They wanted to have an exchange with us, with Red Sky. And so uh, there was this energy. They wanted to share energy across the border. It was great. And both these guys were Americans. Wayne had gone up there during the war to escape the draft, and, and he stayed up there. So he came down, and I'll always remember the first time I saw him. You know, I had had this exchanges with him by, a, that, I guess it was by snail mail. We still did that back then. Or maybe it was by answering machine. Anyway, I knew these guys were coming. And I told him, well, come on down to the Athenian. I was tending bar at the Athenian at the time, down in the Pike Place Market. Interesting time. Um, and I just looked up one Saturday, and there in this throng of tourists, I saw this guy and some other guys, and I said, you must be the poets from Vancouver. And they said, yeah. So we started up this thing, and they read down here, and then they invited me up there, and I was up there for this reading that was built around uh, W.S. Merwin. He was going around. He had just brought out a book of poems called Finding the Islands, which was dedicated to the woman that he was with for a long time, but whom he recently separated from. I wrote a review of it in Point No Point. Uh, anyway. He, he declaimed, he said, well, I don't have any copies of that book. He was pushing something else, but Robert Bringhurst was there, and I got to know his work, and I, I got the beauty of the weapons, and as soon as I read it, it was an experience not unlike my experience with Emily Dickinson. I knew I was in the presence of real poetry here. So in the center of that, of that book is a, a part called... Uh, here's the contents. Uh, Deuteronomy. Yeah, and in Deuteronomy, he retells the story of the Exodus from, from the point of view of Moses himself. And Moses is the speaking voice, and he finds a way of working 
the voice of God in there too. So this guy channeled the voice of God and he did it in such a marvelous way that it really got my attention. So about going up the second time, you know, he says he, he received the, the tablets and he went down and he stumbled and fell and everybody was worshiping, you know, this golden calf. And, uh, he fell, broke the tablets, so he went back up. And the epigraph from the Highline Trail um, describes his discovery. What I found was a couple of flat stones marked up as if the mountain had written all over them. I've seen those stones, and a hundred thousand like them, in the shambles of a mountain on my left, up east, above the vertical corridors, riven, promising something, risk, exertion, and at last, accessibility to the dim, screaming emptiness of the upper air. To say those summits resemble cathedrals is only to say that the mind seeks comfort in its makings, which are always visions shattered by experience. Below the rifted strata of those peaks, steep spills of scree bespeak precarious repose, the interruption of descent. Picture an oak leaf caught in the air, hung in the wind by a thread you cannot see. Although you know it's there, it must be there. Discard then, if you can, the image, keeping only the fleeting idea of the spider's broken web. Then as the stalled momentum gathers dust and grasses, flowers, crumholtz, picture how it sorted itself out. The pastel shrieks of pale minerals tracing a geometry of spills. The tumble down of boulders strewn by size and weight from the slope's foot to the broad bench of the meadow where, to complete the foreground, let some evidence of bear appear. The craters, large as kitchen gardens, where a sow has forished glacier lily bulbs. Or let the bear herself appear, one more menacing omnivore, surrounded by her cubs. Follow now the trail above all this into the clicking, slippery shales and you will discover Moses crouching in yourself above the riven tablets which record what water does. Run, ripple, leave the shape of its retreat. Herein, the law in its simplicity, waves keep. And in one fine-grained surface, brown as cinnamon, a fossil trail, perhaps a crab's, a track of comprehensible intent shaped by hunger and by chance, God's two great instruments. Hunger and chance. Well, they used to say hunger and, f they used to say, what, what was it? It was chance and choice. I can't remember now. Fortuna. Fortuna fatus. Anyway, yeah? Mm -hmm. Hunger favors chance, the flavor of the hunger, yeah. right? Kind of 
narrows what the chance might be. And uh, for a time for you, that hunger was to drink. You've said it a couple of times here. You've said it a couple of times this weekend. I'd love if you'd speak to your struggle with that, how you overcame it. And, you know, you have the whole Jones poems about it. I remember you reading those Jones poems at the Seattle Poetry Festival. It's good to see them in print here. So what do you say to that? Well, um, as as I say, as you read my biography, I was one of uh, six kids in a large Catholic family. And our home was rather chaotic. It was more than rather chaotic. It was really chaotic because my father had a Jones for alcohol. And I have swore that I was never going to be like him. Good luck with that. Yeah. Well, what you swear you're not going to do, that's what happens. So, but when I was 18, I was an awkward, uncomfortable guy. We'll have part two with Stephen Thomas as a separate podcast. Thanks for listening to Cascadian Prophets. Cascadian Prophet supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents, whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Missouri Breaks and Ruby Valley, Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists, a link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.